Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the renowned podcast. This is episode three, and we are your hosts, Mark Schultz and Allison Hager. Renowned podcast is a podcast for the curious, where we dust off the commonplace to find some new relevance as we challenge ourselves to think critically about all the stuff around us. How do things echo humanity's past, reflect the present, or perhaps even foreshadow the future? Allison, how are you doing this week? Doing great. Episode three, as you said, um, and I'm still really enjoying the process. How was the yes. week for you? Yes, really good. I, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but it was again this sense of, okay, time to time to do it, time to do the research and and planning to want to, you know, carve out a little time every day after work, but then that didn't really happen. And so, but it still happened. Like the last few days made myself sit down and do it. And just like the last week and the first week um, was very rewarding. Although I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit, but this week, the word, I don't know, the, my plan for what I wanted to research didn't quite go in the area that I wanted oh. to. And so that was this weird mix of annoyance that I couldn't find the information that I wanted to like research. And then I found something else. And anyway, it was just a twisty turning thing for me. <laughs> but anyway, that maybe makes it a little more interesting in a way because it brought yeah. you down a path you weren't expecting. And that's true. That's true. Um, how about cool. you? Um, same. I had a bit of a, I don't want to say revelation. My process, I think, is evolving a little bit. And ah, okay. I um, I know we'll probably talk about this more at the end, but since we're into it now, I started with a very vague idea of, of a couple ways I might want to go and did a real quick poke around um, kind of right after we got off our recording last time and then set it aside just to let things kind of, you know, roll around. In my oh, I kind of take that as a good... I don't know. That seems like a good sign <laughs> that you were like rode the high of our last show. And the, yeah, no, yeah. definitely. Absolutely. But then every few days I'd be looking at things and I still wasn't sure how I was going to coalesce what I wanted to talk about and wasn't feeling really good about what I was pulling together. And then I woke up one morning and was like, no, it's this direction, which was not something I'd thought about previously as much. So it, it was a very cool process when we think about how our brains work. And when you give yourself time, instead of trying to cram everything into 36 hours, how yeah. you kind of come across uh, the direction. So yeah, it is really kind of fun to step back and watch the process evolve as well as we do this. Excellent. All right. Um, I'm going to tease up something that we've decided together, which is no gerunds. Gerunds are out. <laughs> but tell us, tell us why that is. Set up the word for us. <laughs> so for anyone who listened last week, you will recall that our random word generated was shopping. And um <laughs> Mark sent me a text at some point this week just saying like no gerunds and I was like fine gerund free zone uh and so as most of you probably already know a, a gerund is is a, a noun it's it's the noun form of a verb so you add an ing and shop which is a verb becomes shopping which was our word and uh and becomes a noun it's the act of participating in um so it it did add 
it did add some challenges, I guess, to the research. But it was actually for me kind of fun because I was a little annoyed at the fact that we got a gerund in my head before Mark and I even talked about it. Uh, but then thought, well, this is the game, right? So like, where where might this take us that we wouldn't have been expecting to go? Um, so I think it was kind of fun. That's Who knows if, it, if I'm in charge of random word generation, we get a gerund. I may make my Mark may make Mark do it anyway. <laughs> right. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah, I kept. I kept going back and forth with what I was researching and what I was thinking about saying, oh, well, I'm thinking about the act of this rather than the shopping. And I, I guess we'll get into that a little bit in a second, but like there's a, there's a way to conceive of the shopping versus shopping. So I was, mm, I really tussled with that, but we can talk about that soon. All right. So why Excellent. don't we jump into our just the hits and uh, audience, if you recall, we've got a role for this one. Let's see if I get a three in a row. I've been first the past two. All right. What'd you get, Mark? Five. Oh, I got a four. This is our first episode where Mark gets to go first. Seriously, as we talked about, we were testing probability. I'm glad it's it's holding sound. Um, All right. So going first. uh, Let me get my clock set up for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So audience, we, we, uh, constrain ourselves to 15 seconds to tease up our definition. It's definition of the word, but also probably a little bit of a hint of where we're going with the word. Although I don't feel like I did that this week, but we'll, we'll see. Uh, I like that you didn't timing. do it because I was about to joke that normally I feel like normally we're only on episode three, but I feel <laughs> like you tend to be very literal with the definition and I tend to like do a teaser. <laughs> Still um, literal, but yeah. Well, oh, we'll see. right. Um, okay. So uh, I will count you down. Okay. Three, two, one, go. Shopping is the act of procuring goods from another person or business through barter or payment with currency. That's that. Is that it? That's that. Damn. That was about seven and a half seconds. I am Woo. incredibly impressed and I'm not going to do as well. I will just say that right away. Well, I, I probably could have used the other seven seconds of that or eight seconds to uh, tease things up a little bit more. But yeah, I wanted to go, you know, two weeks in a row of going a little bit over. I figured I'd make it up. Excellent. All right. All right. I'm ready when you are. And three, two, one, go. I'm just going to provide two quotes this week. One from Mahatma Gandhi, which is Earth provides enough to satisfy by every man's needs, but not every man's greeds. And one from Tyler Durden and Fight Club, the things you own end up owning you. 12.7 seconds. Okay, I could have gone slower. Nice. I knew just to jump right into our to our uh, reaction time to the ways that we went. I somehow knew that this was going to spark us going into balance, sustainability, needs. I'm sure we'll touch on capitalism. It's just a a guess. Um, This might be interesting because although I consider myself very progressive, very liberal person, I do have certain streaks in me when it comes to economics and fiscal stuff where, oh, we'll see, we'll see. But I love that you went A, with quotes this week, B, you know, breaking out the Gandhi, well done, um, and and uh, kind of less a definition, more of an impact statement on like 
you know, very, very different than my like factual definition. I, I love that. I can't believe you didn't give me the thumbs up for bringing Fight Club into it as well. Because I mean, oh. anytime I can use a Fight Club reference, I'd like to use Fight Club reference. <laughs> well, it's, it's not our Marvel reference of the week just yet. I guess we'll we'll try to see if we get to get to that. Yeah, I have none in mind. I didn't. Oh no, last time I did because of our topic, but uh, I, it just seems to happen. It'll all it'll right. Spring on us. Well, Mark, I'm so excited that this is your first time going first. So take us away. Okay. Um, so. This week's a little bit interesting for me because where I wanted to go, I'll talk a little bit about that, right? Um, less just a, a list of what I found and, and where I went, which I do have some of that. But when I first like conceived of this, I thought, okay, I did, of course, I did not break my habit of starting with the etymology of it, like the, the root, but I, I didn't, I didn't really follow that up. But for those who have maybe have gotten used to that, shopping comes from. Uh, an old French word, eschop, E-S-C-H-O-P-P-E, eschop, um, which is a, like a lean-to in the woods. It's like a structure in the woods. There's also a German word, schopf, S-C-H-O-P-F, which is for shed. So if you were to go down that rabbit hole, I'm sure you could find really just the sense of where a small place to go and look for goods or to go barter and trade became this, you know, thing out in the woods or a shed became retail stores became et cetera, et cetera. So I thought that was, you know, interesting. Um, not entirely where I went, although now that I say that out loud, you'll see it does have some through lines to where I went a little bit, I guess. So I started to think broadly of shopping as the basis right of economics as like an engine of human advancement into companies corporations which have a very bad rap nowadays but as a, an invention corporations actually enabled massive leaps of of um advancement in humankind and nations and everything else uh yes they have some some significant downsides if if unchecked. But um, if you look at the history of like how we've organized economics, I, I thought that would be somewhere where I could go. That was one angle, but taking on, I feel like all of commerce and like the history of when we first started and needed to trade things um, would be a little bit too much to, to try to bite off in, in one go. Um, I feel like that, you know, is going to be a danger, I feel like, with every one of our weeks, as we've talked about, right? And why we like to actually, maybe it's a good time to pause audience and say, as with all our episodes, if we bring up something that you feel like you are passionate about, know a lot about, it's your field, you're an expert in it, we absolutely um, would like you to reach out to us, post on social media, um, email us, find us on the website. Uh, renownedpodcast.com and let us know. We would absolutely savor and love that type of feedback um, because I'm sure it's already happened in our past two weeks and I'm sure it's going to happen this week. Um, so that was one place where I thought I could go. The, the other place, which I am so annoyed that I couldn't find information on, which is strange. And now I'm like racking my brains. I also feel like, where did I read this? But it was the story of 
the invention of currency and how currency significantly checked and limited the powers of either a tribal chieftain or a king. Um, when in our history, you used to need a central authority figure to quote unquote bless or approve the transfer of goods when it was bartering or this or that, or, or they had to track it. But this drive for business and the, the, the quick exchange of currency as currency rather than, you know, meant that it could happen everywhere and all the time and very quickly. And it really broke things away. And I feel like even to this day, um, as we've watched communist China over the past many years, try to deal with capitalism and fuse that. And in my opinion, uh, it's unfortunate that they've been as successful as they have. Um, but often I feel like in human history that usually the the business drive right that business community is a serious check to centralized government power um so that was another angle so anybody that's listening and feels like that's uh, something they might want to look into that maybe you haven't touched upon that topic before i am passionate about that but i couldn't believe it or not find anything so we're gonna go on and on about the two places that uh i could have gone but what I, where i did go um, is, let me take you back to my childhood very briefly. <laughs> and by all means, Allison, as I'm yammering on, jump in with thoughts or questions as always. Um, if, if you, you think I'm going to interrupt a story about your childhood, you're out of your mind. <laughs> Go, get I mean, the popcorn. It's, it's just, you know, I, I grew up, I was born in 76. And so from a small aged kid, you know, going shopping with his mother um, through the 80s and into the 90s and then going off to college, the local mall for me was a big deal. Um, I feel like for anyone that's in our age group, that's going to be true. I'm going to remember the the power of the mall, and two of the stores that anchored malls across the country were J.C. Penney and Sears. And so I took a look at Sears actually and its history. Oh, exciting! Actually, yeah, and and found something that I had never thought of before. Um, which is some parallels to a big player nowadays and some real irony in how Sears mismanaged its business over its 140-year history. Um, and so I'll get a little bit into that. And so I am, you know, though it's not where I wanted to go. I do think it's, it, it's interesting. It, it sort of mirrors advancements in American culture that powered Sears's rise. Um, and hopefully this isn't um, listeners and Allison sort of treading over things that you might already know. Um, you know, as a kid, I knew Sears because of the two shopping stores, it was the one I didn't like to go to. Little gay <laughs> kid growing up in upstate New York, I love JCPenney, where I felt like, you know, clothing wasn't, you know, <laughs> people like to joke about it. No, was it high end? No, but was it higher end than Sears? Hell yes. Um, and Sears felt stodgy. It felt like more a place for like really boxy low end clothes. It was more for like washing machines. And what I found is that is very true because their history very much played into that as a niche. Um, so that's 
coming into this, that's sort of all I knew about Sears was, oh, it was the other staple store like that was like the, the, the heart of Aviation Mall, if it's still there. I don't even know, in upstate New York. Um, and, and I knew that over the years, I didn't like shop there. And I knew that it sort of struggled and probably failed. And I had to look up whether or not it was even still around. Like I just, you know, didn't know. Um, so with that, I will jump into a little bit of the history and why I think it's interesting. I, I will pause though, Allison, <laughs> any like initial thoughts or reactions to Sears? Just that, believe Sears? it or not, I'm really excited about this because as you'll see in my section, I have a very small reference to Sears in a, when I'm just talking about a much broader thing. I'm talking, I mentioned okay. it once, but when I was, uh, you know, kind of thinking, yeah, I need to mention this because it's important in the evolution of shopping. Um, I thought, you know, there's probably so much interesting there in terms of their rise and fall, like you said, and it was not a direction I would have ever expected you to go in. So <laughs> I'm actually really excited that you're going to tell me all about it now because I, I didn't dive down that rabbit hole myself. Nice, nice. Okay, so the company really started, like fledgling started with Richard Sears, uh, Sear, um, and... Um, uh, 1880. So Richard Sears worked as a technician uh, on a telegraph network. And as the, apparently the story goes, but I, you know, researched it and I'll remind our audience, the, the sources that we use, we'll put in like a work cited type of list, a bibliography also um, on our episode, in our episode notes and on the website. So take a look there if you want to do some further uh, research or take a look at where we got our information. So he found himself, as he's this telegraph worker, in possession of this wristwatch that came, you know, COD, but was never claimed. So he didn't know what to do with it. Um, I find it interesting that he reached out to the manufacturer, which feels like an above board thing to do. <laughs> didn't just like walk off of it and asked the manufacturer sort of, I don't know, what, what can he do? What should he do? And they basically said, well, if you remit us, if you send us payment for the wholesale cost, you can resell it at a profit. They, they didn't huh. mind. And so what he did was he wrote to all of his fellow technicians, and apparently he became known for this later on. He just was sort of super aggressive and became basically an ad copy person without even knowing it. And he did this whole thing of like, I can justify and stand by the quality of this watch and it's a low low price like this whole right like just I falls find this, this so interesting effect. because at the, in the first part he's being this like stand-up guy he's not just stealing something that well it's here no one picked it up i can just take it who's really gonna know so he's trying to do the right thing and then he turns into like I know it's not, he's not selling snake oil, but he, you know, he's kind of going this really like hawking right. hard. And that, and that, that grows. So, so that was successful. So over time, he starts to sort of do this more. He finds other watches that he can get through, you know, wholesalers and then make profit off of it. He even goes so far as to begin to take broken, like get special deals on broken watches that they sent him. He repairs them and then sells them. So even more of a profit, of course, when he starts to do that. So when that starts to pick up for himself as like the side hustle, uh, he looks for a 
watch repair person. The evolution can, of the gig economy. Sorry, goes back to Sears <laughs> also. Right? He's like has his full-time job, but it's not probably doing enough for him and he wants more and he picks up the side hustle. Um, so when he starts to expand and probably has more watches than he can repair on his own, or maybe who knows, like I didn't look into this, but I would guess you get certain watches that you just don't know how to repair. You need somebody better than you. Probably a bit of, you know, uh, frequency and expertise. He goes and looks for someone who will become basically his first employee as the side hustle. And so that is Alva Roebuck. And so, right. And so Roebuck, if anyone remembers the full name of Sears is Sears and Roebuck mm -hmm. company, uh, becomes his partner. And so they continue to right aggressively sell to uh, around them, not just as coworkers, but it starts to grow and they not, they take on not just watches, but they begin to expand into jewelry. Um, and they sort of take off from there, to be honest. Right. So I, in the research also, I wanted to see was mail order, was this the first time this was happening, but not the, not the case. They did not invent this model. Um, Benjamin Franklin apparently started it when he was selling his Pennsylvania stoves. I knew nothing about that, but apparently he did mail order, was kind of the first, one of the first. And then even at this point in 1880 or so, when Richard started to do this, uh, Montgomery Ward already existed. They became active in 1872 and they were like the major mail order player. So he starts to grow and they expand. And then as they expand, they kind of end up challenging as they continue to, to grow. I mean, this company uh, quintupled sales within five years. And then quintupled again within 10 years after that. Wow. So like just exponential growth, crazy. Um, they launched into using a book and it was the big book, but it was also called the wish book. And when I was picturing what this thing was, I was picturing like, you know, books that when I was younger, you know, or the, the things you might still get from certain places like Ikea nowadays or something like that. But this thing was massive and was written more as like, there were full stories. I, I read somewhere there was like 3000 words on like why something was good and should exist and be a part of the family home and things. I read in one article that it was used in poor Southern schoolhouses as like a primer like a reference tool. So you can imagine it, it was more, it had more circulation than the largest newspapers in the country. It, it was everywhere. And why that was, is he was coming into when the railroad expanded the possibility to ship things. Um, parcel post did not exist yet until 1913, but that helped them once it was there. But, you know, this early on, shipping everything was... Um, was a major boon and a major need for rural areas that were sort of cut off from cities where, where you know, there were more retail shops, right? Actual shops for shopping. Um, so one thing that I found interesting, I'll try to, to, to move through this, was this mail order splurge like like within a few years i think by 1900 or so uh yeah 
within you know, by 1900, they overtook Montgomery Ward. They were the leading player. These books were, were massive um, and, and had a, such a wide circulation. But the backlash was significant. You had people in the Southern states, shopkeepers, burn, like bonfires, hosting bonfires of burning the Sears and Roebuck wow. book, offering bounties for people bringing the book so that they could burn them as fuel, um, offering um, movie tickets and cinema tickets or show tickets to people for bringing them in, right? They, they did not want this disruptive <laughs> model to, to model business. But meanwhile, these shops were very localized. They didn't have high quality. And so their, their variety was very low and limited. Um, you also had local newspaper editors who relied on the local retail shops placing ads. So you suddenly had this um, editors known for calling, like name calling, coming up with these bizarre names to sort of taint the, the reputation of Sears and Roebuck and, and others and Montgomery Ward. Um, they even went so far, this is very negative, but in the South, apparently this was in the Encyclopedia of Southern Culture, they mentioned that because nobody could see in that time period who these guys were, it was very easy to get yokel Southerners to believe they were Black. And so that spreading that was a way to damage the reputation of Sears and Roebuck. Like just, you know, that the whole story just, right, even your face right now, it just sets off such yeah, I'm horrified powder kegs of like how, you know, things can happen socially for us in our history. Um, okay, so anyway, uh, let's fast forward a little bit. They, well, first of all, I, I'm going to pause there because I'm going to come back to that. But if that doesn't sound a little bit familiar to Amazon's complete upheaval, right, with e-marketing and, and e-commerce uh, in the mid-90s through the 2000s. So now where they are just seen a bit as this like ogre of destroying mom and pop shops and local retail, this dynamic was so cyclical and was happening then, which I just think is, is crazy fascinating. The twist um, a little bit to this is you then get massive urbanization and you get the Model T and that being affordable for people there for many more people to have cars. And therefore it's less of a problem to go to major cities or to, to drive somewhere for shopping. So they do end up, even though they made their start and became so successful through um, mail order, they did need to open retail shops. So they do that in 19, checking my notes here, uh, 1925 in, I believe, Chicago it was. And so 1925, within four years, they had 300 department stores all over the country. I mean, I think that's just remarkable, right? Especially at the time in 1925. I, I think it's remarkable to do that now, much less in 25, to go from zero brick and mortar locations footprints to within you know four years having 300 all over the country. It's wild. Um, they survived the Great Depression. They grew during the Great Depression, which is a bit shocking. I thought I would have seen a decline in their, their footprint. No, they did that by focusing on a, an aesthetic of thrift and selling staples, socks, things like that. Whereas other department stores who tried to pride themselves on 
they call it like soft goods, things that are a little bit more fancier and as unnecessary, um, didn't fare as well as you can imagine. I'm sure there have been a lot of, uh, I pictured MBA papers and case studies written about uh, how that was managed as like an, an, an amazing meteoric rise and surviving the Great Depression. And then everything that came after that was just like a decline. <laughs> so I'm trying to wrap this into like one arc. Here's the, here's the, like the mismanagement from there. They become wildly popular, but then for me, I feel like this is probably tied. It's, it's two things that I think happened. One, they became sort of against the grain of progressive changes that were happening culturally, which is probably why you, you get to me in the eighties feeling like this place is stodgy and sort of conservative. Eh, probably kind of was um, on purpose. Um, but so they resisted labor unions and unionization, and they fought hard against that in the forties and fifties. They resisted in the sixties uh, social movements to seek economic equality for African-Americans Boycotts from African-Americans started as early as the 1930s against Sears and Roebuck. Um, although they were not, um, they, they got out of this or acquitted. I don't think that's the right word for when a company is sued. But um, uh, there was a classic Sears case in the 1980s brought by the EEOC against Sears for discrimination against women being like passed over for lucrative commission roles and sales and things like that. So not the best track record, clearly. Uh, I will of, say though, I not not to at all defend or excuse them, but I think they were one of many large companies who were dealing with, you know, racial inequality and um, sexism at the time. Right, right, and feeling, I think, as we know from anybody that has has those horrible viewpoints, it comes out of fear. They were like, we built this thing, and now society is changing, and we don't know what to do. But here's an example of where I feel like they could have kept eyes and ears opened and just, oof. So through the seventies, um, inflation took off and caused this split, a polarization of shopping approaches that either went to high end or very low end, like much lower end. And so oddly, here's the first ironic thing. They wrote a middle path, whereas when they started, it was low, low prices and money back guarantees and, and all about really cheap or dependable goods for Southern rural people. Now in the 70s, they're trying to ride this middle line and they're losing because people are going now to Walmart. Hmm, that name comes up a bit. Uh, Target and uh, and Kmart, I think. Or they're going you know, much higher end. I, I didn't know any of the names, but I, you know things that come to mind are Saks, Bergdorf, Goodman, places like we, you know we have here in this, the city. So that's happening on one side. They end up going into, of all things, like insurance and financial services. I didn't even know that. And you're like, what? You know, just talk about. But I'm all for companies read. You know, uh, finding, diversifying, uh, diversifying, right. and, and finding yeah. a new path. But that's just so not your core competency. You don't even change your name. So then like, what? Like, it's just very strange to me. But anyway, I feel like the real nail in the coffin came in when they then tried to come back in like 2004-ish. They merged with, uh, basically with Kmart into a holding company. And at the birth of e-commerce, somehow didn't 
take advantage of that. And so now you've got Amazon's meteoric rise. And I never knew that, you know, as I wrote here in my notes, if Richard Sears was alive to watch it, I would assume he is just furious with the fact that how he started the company in the spirit of offer everything through mail order, send it out. It's like the exact same model as Amazon, but powered through the internet and, and the order. And it's just the ordering system is different. People were mailing in their orders to Richard Sears. Right. And now you just, you know, electronically put them through. I just think he would be so completely <laughs> upset with that. Um, the final mail is I, in, in 2018, they survived barely through a bankruptcy decision that they were almost completely liquidated and put out but they were cut down to 400 um, locations and now post COVID or coming out of COVID, we hope, um, slowly. They're at only 200 stores remaining now. I went to their website, assuming like the logo, at least that I remember, like if you remember like the striped letters kind of a thing, that's different. I, I thought it was on the wrong site. I, I literally thought I was on like a placeholder website, you know, where you go somewhere and because the logo is just boring and weird. I'm embarrassed just, to say, yeah. I'm embarrassed. I thought they were gone already. I didn't I mean, even know they still existed. Sure. Yeah. That's yeah. that's actually incredible to me that they're hanging on at all. Um, so I guess it, it, I ended here with, how can a company that rose to power, yes, through mail order of such a wide variety of prices have not found its, its way again to dominance in the e-commerce age is just... Shopping. I almost, you know, it's almost like they were too, you know, Mr. Sear was way too ahead of his time. He was doing this then. And then, you know, they couldn't, they can't always be ahead of their time. Maybe they're going to come up with the next big innovation in shopping. I don't believe this really, but weirder things right. have happened. Right. You never know. I think they're like down for the count here, but you know, yeah. If you get the right person with the right vision, 200 stores is still nothing to sneeze at. They, they exist, but it's just, oof, gosh. I loved your perfect, it's not an arc. It was like a, an orbit. I loved how you started and came back together. That was really nicely constructed. Thank you. <laughs> so yeah, that's my that's my rabbit hole. Really, really well done. I, I also think I deserve a shout out for using constructed to explain how you talked about shopping. And orbit. You said it was sort of elliptical. You I came know, back. Right? Just, oh. mm -hmm. And you didn't say pile once. So listeners, that's a reference to the last episode, episode two, in which probably the most said word was pile. Pile. <laughs> okay. Do you want me to jump into my rabbit hole? Uh, yeah. However, yeah, I want to do that. And then we can talk reactions or if you want to react now, it's whichever you want to do. I honestly, I do. I think kind of what I said. Oh, I do have one very important question, but kind of what I said, I'm so excited. I've learned more about the history of Sears because they really did have such an impact, right? In the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, I thought you really pulled it together well. You talked about their book, the big book, being used as a primer in schools for teaching children to read. Okay, is it primer or primer? This is my big important question to you because so many people say primer and it makes me crazy because I've the way it's spelled- I've heard primer so much and it actually makes me angry because the way it's spelled is with one M. So yeah. you'd think that I would be long, but actually I find that most people say primer and there's something about that that drives me crazy and makes me think about Little House on the Prairie. So that that's just, we have to, we're going to have to look that up. We have to absolutely look that up because 
to prime something makes much more sense in how it's being used. You're priming someone for education. But right, we're going to end up seeing, we're probably going to find that it's both. And it's funny you say Little House on the Prairie. I bet you it was said wrong for so long. They just kept saying it. The magic of language. We can really call shit whatever we want. (laughs) I mean, that is kind of the beauty. And the the downfall. Bugaboo, exactly. Especially when it's being used to educate. And that's funny. As always, audience, if if you have strong feelings that Primer is right and you know why, please. Please tell us, honestly. I'll buy you coffee. I really want to know. It's bugged me my whole life. Send us an audio recording of you describing it in a couple minutes and maybe we'll even air it on the show. (laughs) Use it in a sentence. All right, Allison. Yes, please. Okay. Take it away. All right. I'm going to jump in. I find it really interesting this week too, Mark. I think in the past few episodes, you've gone broader and I've gone more narrow. And I think we've switched this time around, which is interesting because we were wondering, right, were we going to fall into kind of a certain way of doing things? And I will say the beginning part of what I wanted to talk about, I was about 90% sure that if you rolled highest and went first, that you would have covered. And I'd be able to say, Mark already covered it but you didn't as much. So I'm going to jump in to, to something broader before I get a little more narrow um, and, and just share some of the history. So Mark already talked about what shopping is, but kind of a very broad history um, of shopping. You know, it brings us from the Greek Agora, which were stalls that would be set up in a town center, right? But they'd normally be taken down after, you know, they weren't retail establishments that were permanent. The Roman had, the, a, a town would have a forum. So the fora has been cited, have been cited as the first examples of a permanent retail structure because often the stalls, they were still just stalls, uh, but in the fora would would be permanent. Um, But as Europe, and I focus on Europe here because I just couldn't focus on the development of shopping in every culture around the world. And this also brings me somewhere I wanted to go. So understand I wasn't looking everywhere globally, but if you move into the Middle Ages, things really move back to something Mark mentioned, which was most people who aren't noble are just subsistence farming and they're getting everything else they need by bartering and or going directly to a tradesman for things you couldn't barter for. But you did not see retail shops. And um, if you were nobility, vendors came to you. Right. So you weren't you weren't doing as much of, of going out anywhere. And then, of course, peddlers went from town to town, either set up, they'd go from home to home or they'd set up in the middle of a town square. But again, limited permanent retail shops. In fact, any retailers were considered hucksters generally, which is funny thinking forward to like how Sears, Mr. Sear got his start uh, because they were seen as like just middlemen that people didn't need to get their daily goods. So they were making money from not doing much was the perception. So people are shopping uh, with trades, people bartering for their daily needs, mostly the realm of women. I didn't go down this path, but it is interesting that women really were the ones who were relied upon to go out and get the goods that the family would need on a daily basis. Um, But no one was really shopping for pleasure. (laughs) Like that, that wasn't happening. They were shopping to survive. But with the rise of the middle class in the 17th and 18th centuries, you started having people shopping for pleasure. And so with that, there was more income. There were more goods available, which I'll get into. So by the second half or by the late 18th century, shopping arcades began to appear. You would have permanent establishments grouped together, but each shop would be sort of specialized. Right. So you'd go to one shop to get your 
brooms, you go into another shop to get your pottery. Um, and those developed, of course, into department stores. So that happened in the second half of the 19th century, where you'd have stores that were much larger and had maybe everything you might need in one spot. And as we know, there's a lot of detail here. We're just going to skip forward. This leads to shopping hubs and malls. Mark talked about his childhood at the mall. And of course, <laughs> mail order is coming along throughout this. And I won't spend any time on this because Mark really talked about it so well. This is where I was going to mention this year's and robot catalog. And as Mark alluded to or said directly, you know, it was a game changer for rural citizens in the U.S. because they could not get access to a broad array of goods. And now they could. Then, of course, many people followed in the footsteps of Sears and Roebuck. And we end up, of course, with e-tail. So within this broad timeline, there are several significant global developments that impact the availability of goods and thus all of these modes of shopping. So, of course, the Industrial Revolution, which Mark also touched on, um, of the 19th century is one of these, as is the invention of mass production. So that was late 19th mid, through the mid 20th century. The term mass production wasn't popularized until the early 20th century, but modes of mass production were happening much earlier than that. So I'll come back to that. But I want to focus first on a much earlier development, which was the expansion of the European understanding of the size of the world, right? So ships are being sent out by different countries to go explore, um, colonize, loot, plunder. And this led to more trade routes being developed with Asia and what Europeans would call the new world. Um, and it was new access to Europeans for goods from afar. So unfortunately, to increase availability and profits, the transatlantic slave trade begins. And so we've all learned about slave trade um, in middle school social studies, uh, maybe not as much as we should, however. So in the 16th century, you have European goods, uh, think furs, weapons, wine, beads, cloth, uh, being traded, loaded up on ships, being sent to Africa and being traded for African slaves. Those slaves being then brought transatlantic to the new world, again, what Europe called the new world, it existed before they found it, and then traded for goods from the new world, sugar, coffee, that sort of thing. And then those new world goods would go back to Europe and this triangle continued. Go ahead, Mark. I see you have a question. I, yeah. Well, no, I wanted to jump in with some context of like another thing that folks can research, but I didn't want to throw you off your, your role. No, here. go for I, it. I like it when we jump in. Because I'm not sure if you're going to move to another part of this or not, or, or jump into it. But one thing that I think folks might want to look at is I first came across the topic as a play that was here in the city at the public theater called the controversy. I believe it's the controversy of the Valladolid. So Valladolid uh, is, I believe, either a palace or a city in Spain. I might be butchering this, but it was where a massive decision had to be made by the Catholic Church on whether or not natives to the new quote unquote the new world and uh and african americans and so on both peoples had a uh, a soul and if they had a soul then the slave trade could not be okay um basically and so imagine just that horrifying i mean experience that the 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 discussion that's that's happening and at least how it's 
dramatized in the in the play is they do come to the decision that this is wrong, but they okay it for purely economic reasons because they're like, yeah. wait, if we say this, then you're stopping the African American slave trade. It's gonna it's gonna ripple, and you're stopping this massive engine of quote unquote progress, quote unquote, uh, and you know greed and 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 money. So. Validolid, uh, we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, I just wanted to mention that as like a somewhere another another rabbit hole to 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 follow. Sorry. No, that's fantastic. <laughs> I'm not I'm not aware of that play. I'm glad glad you brought it up and you've really touched on. It. I mean, even when you're talking about the African slave trade and the pro, um, I was going to say prohibitionist, excuse me, abolitionist debates going on. Um, you know, for centuries, it always came back to exactly what Mark mentioned as well. Yes. Okay. Maybe we could say it's morally wrong, but there's a lot going on here. What are we going to do? Money. Yeah. Prices will go up. It'll be bad for consumers, and people always went in that direction. So, actually, Mark, that was a great. It was kind of a great segue. So, I I will. um, I I will leave out some of the details of that I was going to share about the slave trade because I think. Hopefully everybody knows about it, but it is estimated that it's worth saying that 10 to 12 million Americans, uh, Africans were enslaved between the 16th and 19th centuries. And 15% of those perished. So a lot of those um, African slaves were captured in more inland areas of Africa and marched to the coast. 15% died on that march. The march was brutal enough. And then another 15, 20% died on the transatlantic journey um, in the slave ships. So that's approximately 4 million people who died after being taken from their homes before they even got to the horrors that waited for them on the other side. And all of this was to fuel both greed and consumerism, right? So the merchants made more money and citizens around the world had access to more goods. So let's really talk about consumerism and what it is. As I mentioned, with the development of the middle class in Europe in the 17th century, it really starts developing there, but it continues to grow long after the slave trade is abolished due to further increasing availability of goods and lower cost, thanks to the industrial revolution, mass production, things that Mark mentioned. Um, there's also improved shipping options, right? As the centuries progress, there's better reach via the catalogs that we talked about, TV advertising before that radio advertising becomes something. And then of course, e-tail. So as consumerism continues unabated. Um, And while the Atlantic slave trade was abolished in the 19th century, slavery is far from a different, uh, distant memory. Current estimates of enslaved people in the world are incredibly hard to get. Uh, Different organizations attempt to track this number from the UN to NGOs to governments. They generally don't cooperate and share data, number one, and also they use different definitions of slavery. So it's very hard to get a number. The most consistent number I could find was somewhere around today. Right now, there are 30 to 40 million enslaved people in the world. 26% of those are children. And about 25% of those are enslaved for forced labor, meaning that about 2 million children at this moment are enslaved to work in factories and mines on farms to create the goods we buy. I wanna just focus on children. Anyone who is currently enslaved, this is a big problem. Um, not all Austin, of them. Did you, did you say yeah. forty million? Thirty to forty million people. My gosh! I, I just to put that in context, folks. That's about fifteen percent 
of the entire population of the United States. And I, I did that in my, I did not do that in my head. <laughs> oddly, oddly, 40 million was another um, metric for me it, for work this week. And I, I had to do the math, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's insane. It's huge. It's and a lot of that um, slavery is um, sexual. Yeah. Right. So the, the vast majority, I believe, um, is sexual people being trafficked for sexual purposes. And there are other types of slavery, but um, labor is a big part of it. So according to UNICEF, this is just one source. Again, you can get 10 different numbers here if you look deep enough. According to UNICEF, there are about 160 million children engaged in forced labor. Forced labor, that number is bigger, right? Because slavery can be defined as Honestly, someone has bought this child and they're using them. Forced labor could be a family's forcing them to work, their economic conditions, that sort of thing. So the definitions get very tricky. Um, but children exposed to forced labor or slavery, as well as other people in a manufacturing or a factory or mining or a farming setting, you know, they're exposed to toxic chemicals. There are no safety regulations. They get no health care. It's cheaper to buy a new kid. So it's anywhere from 24 US dollars to 237 US dollars globally to buy a child. Way cheaper than providing them with healthcare. It's horrifying. Um, they're not given any education. They're subject to beatings and sexual assault, right? They have no agency whatsoever. And there's an estimate that 22,000 are killed in forced labor situations each year. Dicey statistic as well. Any perpetrator isn't exactly gonna self-report. Right. So, again, very hard area to get data in, but we know that it's a massive, massive problem. So the U.N. has sustainable development targets across 16. I apologize. It's 16 or 17 areas and goals within around the world, everything from climate change to justice. And they have a, a sustainability target to eradicate all child labor by 2025, which is only three years away and all slavery by 2030, but by all accounts, it is not going well. <laughs> They're very unlikely to meet these targets. And one of the reasons it's not going well is that many of us in what the developed world, the Western world, I don't like either of those terms, uh, but I don't know what else to call it. A, have no idea it's happening. B, don't know which companies and brands kind of are participating in this or not. And C, even if you knew, where do you start in terms of doing something about it? So there are many, many big name brands that are alleged to still engage in the use of um, child slaves, either directly or through their suppliers. Uh, to name a few, Adidas, Nike, Victoria's Secret, Disney, ironically. Um, I want to be clear that these are allegations that most of these companies refute, right? Um, many of them also now have mission statements on you know, zero tolerance for child abuse, slave labor, sustainability goals, all of that. But here you run into hurdles of transparency and enforcement. So there's a Harvard, Biz Harvard Business Review article that we'll post uh, that posits that the biggest issue here and why, regardless of what a company says they're doing about it, why they're not really doing much about it is will willful ignorance, right? On the part of the companies. Because it is a very tough nut to crack. So number one, they can't possibly know everything going on with every supplier they have. So they can have these statements, they can do their initial research, and then they can hire a supplier who, unbeknownst to them, is using slave labor. Um, the second thing is, without forced labor, costs go up, prices go up, and sales go down. So going back to what Mark said before, this engine, quote unquote, of progress, this, you know, the fact people making money and then 
on the other side, people getting goods to make their life more convenient, it's really much easier not to think about it and just proceed. So here's what you can do if you'd like to try to make a difference. You can research your favorite brands. See, you know, what do they say about this? Do they have corporate statements um, stating that they will not participate in this? And if they don't, you can write them. Uh, you can write your government officials about the need for stronger laws, policing companies, and developing third-party auditors. If we don't have a third party being able to go out and audit, again, there's no way to get to the bottom of this. And you can also try to buy fair trade. And again, I know this is hard and I know people are busy, but you can do your research and look up fair trade uh, brands and companies. There is one website, this one's specifically for fashion, but there are many more and we'll post this. It's called goodonyou.org. They also, uh, so they rate like really bad to like, yep, they're doing a great job to in the middle, like it's a start, but then they give you details. What are they doing specifically about both the environment and slave labor? And <clears throat> I've said it before, you've heard it before, say it again. Uh, it's really important to uh, reduce, reuse and recycle, right? So I'm gonna, I'm also gonna mention the environmental impact. So you've got the environment, yeah, environmental impact of sustainable. I am losing my ability to speak. I apologize. Of consumerism uh, on top of this. Um, so, if we curb our consumption, this goes a long way to helping all of these issues. Uh, we're not then reinforcing the need for slave labor as much, and uh, we're doing less to harm the environment. And again, it can be daunting to think about where to start, but every little change you make does help. You don't have to become a saint. It's impossible, but you can do very small things and they do make an impact. It adds up when everyone does it. And it also influences other people to do it. So one is hold on to goods that still work instead of buying that shiny new item, just because you can um, only replace things when you need to. And when you need to, in many cases, there are options to buy used. So you're not reinforcing the need for constant manufacturing um, if you can't buy used in, or you can't find viable used options, try to buy fair trade. With your old items, if they do still work, you can try to sell them or donate them. Um, make sure you know the details of your local recycling pro program. So recycling programs are different around the globe. They're different by state. They're different by municipality. And so throwing something into your recycling bin that isn't recycled is as bad as not recycling because it really causes problems within the system. In fact, if you live in New York City, you can go on a free tour of our recycling facility and learn a lot about it. And I highly recommend it. And we'll put the link in there. It's really, really interesting. And I learned a lot when I did it several years ago, pre-COVID. Um, if you have something that's not recyclable, please try to donate. There are organizations, there are so many organizations, for instance, here in New York, Housing Works, um, mostly housewares, clothes, those are things that, that can be most donated. So there are a lot of things you can't donate it. You can give them away. There's a website called freecycle.org. It has um, communities. You sign up for a community based on where you live all around the world where you can post, I am giving away this tea set. You have to pick it up. Here's a picture of it. People come and pick it up. It's a way to like, and trust me, I've never had one thing I've posted as small as it is not have people be interested in it. So it's a really great way that something doesn't end up in a landfill and gets a new home and gets used. And then tiny little thing, just bring your own bags when you're shopping. 
try to buy things that have less packaging if you have multiple options. Um, so that was a lot. And I really, my intention is not to preach. Um, my intention is, so I'm certainly not perfect in any of these ways, but really rather to shine a light kind of on the really dark underbelly of things that are happening so that we have access to as many goods as we do. You know, we get such a benefit from the availability of goods and from e-tail, but, you know, having everything at our fingertips can come at a dark price. And um, I'll just end with another quote from Noam Chomsky, who linguist, philosopher, cognitive scientist, brilliant man. Um, small changes add up. As long as the general population is passive, apathetic, diverted to consumerism, or hatred of the vulnerable, then the powerful can do as they please. And those who survive will be left to contemplate the outcome. And I just thought that was a really fitting way to kind of sum this up and remind ourselves that we can try to do better every day. So that is it. It was not neatly as neatly constructed as Marx was. Um, I got too, uh, I think, uh, passionate there about railing against the slave trade. Um, but I will pause and let Mark get a word in edgewise. No, I, I think it's wonderful. I, I think it's another example of you finding a way in. I remember you not being bowled over and super excited with this term, um, <clears throat> with this noun, this fake noun. I'm just kidding. The gerund. Um, and yeah, you found a way to to hook into it and 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 follow a path that yeah is passionate and incredibly important to you. Um, so no, I think that's great. I think for me, it echoed when I started to look at it, knowing that this was going to. And it's funny how it 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 evolved when I we first got the word and I was shopping. I just feel like it hits you as, at least it hit me as, oh, yes, it's just the act of shopping, walking on Fifth Avenue here. And it's just this, you know, there's this sense of all the, the pop culture references to like retail therapy, ha, 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 and this and that. But when you really look at what's driving it from, uh, well, you touched on it. Actually, I almost jumped in and, and with a question when you were early in on the, the timeline, because one thing I struggled with, and I was curious if you did, was defining shopping um meaning there is like a term to do to do the shopping which is almost a cyclical you know what you need it's almost akin to grocery shopping these are not things that are quote unquote nice to haves there are the oh i need eggs bread and milk and like, you know what I mean? I need to go buy flour, whatever the staples are. So that could be teamed as like the shopping versus like I just said, Fifth Avenue shopping, getting another shirt that you don't necessarily need, but you want. Um, and so I, when I was trying to sort of wrap my head around this, this week's topic, that was one fork in the road that I needed to stop and consider. I don't know that I necessarily followed one or the other, but it was, you know, to be at a fork of the road where I thought hmm, there's a difference. Uh, and if I went the history route, I was going to say, do I need to find a time when we needed to go buy or barter from someone else because we weren't making it ourselves, like an agrarian or agricultural society. But there was always a time where we were trading for spices or something. So I'll let you put a, a word in advice. I think you wanted to react. 
No, I think that's good. I didn't think about the shopping at all, but like the shopping kind of, I got to go do the shopping for the week. But I mean, I think going down that path could lead a lot to um, talking about the development of gender roles in society and uh, going to feminism and stuff. That could have been a really interesting um, path to take as well. But yes, Barter has been there since the earliest times. They they have done experiments and I, I don't know if it's chimpanzees or orangutans, but they barter. They, they've demonstrated that they know how to barter. They often barter with, with each other. So of course, uh, scientists will set up experiments where they start to understand, like if they give me that rock, I'll give them a banana. But they also, they barter with each other. It is, um, I will try to find this article. I didn't read it for this. This is something I read a number of years ago, but they barter for sex. I was just going to like half joke. Yeah, But then absolutely. I was like, do I want to bring that up on our podcast? But I, I want to bring it up. So it'll be, you know, a, a male, again, orangutan, chimp, bonobo. I'm not sure, but I will, I will try to find this. We'll offer a piece of fruit to a female and it's understood. I'll give you this fruit. You know, it's the whole equivalent of I bought you dinner. So I should not joke about that. So um, sex for bananas. It goes, it goes, the barter goes back even pre, right? Pre us being um, bipedal. So, yeah. So there you go. So I think that, um, Mark, this is probably a lot of big questions that come out of this week, but this leads us to your big question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know my questions now are, yeah, it's tricky. Speaks tricky. Um, all right. So what do I have here? So one of those is the effect of Amazon now truly any different than the effect of Sears Roebuck at the turn of the 20th century? Now, because I don't know. And I think I would have to look at this. I'm sure there will be a lot of people that have very learned, informed no doubt passionate, probably one way or the other beliefs on this. Um, But what I started to to think about was, but is the difference just in scale and size or is it really different in a more nefarious way now than it was? Or is it, you know, or is it very much the same? I I can't say for sure that the scale and size is that different because this was fully national. If you're looking at it as a percentage of sales in the country, now there's just a lot more people, so the numbers are higher. But are the is the reach and the penetration of Amazon the same? Who knows? Um, somebody knows. I do not yet. I, I could research that, but I'm sure we'll be on to the next topic next week. Um, so I started to think about that. But also, you could say potentially Amazon is going to be better than Sears was at the time, right? You. Uh, for me, I had to put it in context. One thing that changed early on in, in the um, in the Sears Roebuck catalog days, I don't remember the name of the act, but it was the first time that in advertising, you had to really strip out the sale of like snake oils and things like that. You couldn't speak to them in a way that was just completely lying, right? Like, And so the way, and that just wasn't for Sears, that was across the board. Um, so that just shows you that the the business practices and how transparent things were was probably much much worse. So now, although Amazon gets a lot of slack um, or flack, I mean, flack. enough, um, a lot of flack for for things, I would almost argue that 
it is much more transparent now. I bet you that the standardized business practices have got to be better than they were then. And also, Sears and Roebuck had a lot of rules on who they would or wouldn't represent in their book. Um, one rule I came across was they would never work with a supplier that they were their only outlet, which is interesting. You'd think they would want the exclusivity, but I think it was the, the reverse. They wanted people that were also supplying elsewhere. Don't quite understand, but so there's a, an example of some rules. Whereas I believe Amazon is very welcoming to mom and pop and single artisans and things all over to give them access to markets that they would never reach if they were just trying to like do it from their own website or have people drive to their shop. I feel like Amazon opens up global marketplaces wildly more than was, was possible in the past. So that was one of my big questions is, although it gets flack, is it that different from the past? And is, in, is it in some ways actually maybe potentially much, much better? Um, yeah, I mean, I have some other things here, but I think maybe in the interest of time, that's that's one of my big questions. Yeah, no, I think it's the perfect question. It leads into mine a little bit too. And I think as all our big questions, we're never going to find the answer. I think you're right though. There must be more transparency in this day and age. We have access to more information with the internet. There are better fair business standards and practices in place. Um, there are, I believe, stronger like antitrust laws in place. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's still a lot of issues, of course, with the union busting. Um, which I do believe is problematic. Um, and when you open up to all sellers, including mom and pop shops, that is great. But this is what leads into my big question, which was, you know, as, as you pointed out, Mark, Sears and Roebuck, same thing. You had mom and pop shops saying, oh, no, no, hell no. You're taking away from my business. And then you see that again with Amazon. You just see history repeat itself. And we know that, you know, doing things in that way, online retail, hampers unions, provides better prices often, definitely more availability, right? If there's something I really want and I can't get it at my local shop, I do try to shop local, but if I can't get it and the shop can't easily get it for me, I'm ordering it online. Um, so we all know that there's this, like, there are these positives and negatives to it. But then one thing I was thinking about um, that furthers your question, I think it's just a continuation is what else are we losing? And are we losing in terms of community. So when you had main streets and town squares, it wasn't just economic. You were going, you were shopping, you were talking to people who lived in your neighborhood and your town or city, you were talking and interacting with neighbors. And so we're not, we don't have that connection anymore. Do everything online. We don't have to deal with any human being, do all the research for our goods online. We can look for availability online. We can price compare online. So does this disconnection lead to a lessened interaction? Yes, it does, physically at least, with people in our neighborhood. And does that lead to like less of an understanding with others and lead to further siloing? So I think we can all agree that in the past five years in the US, at least, if not globally, things have become a lot more siloed. Opinions have become a lot stronger with the rise of the internet Anyone can, who disagrees with you can just block you instead of engaging you in conversation and trying to share points of view or just spew hate at you. Um, and so we're doing less of trying to understand each other and more of trying to make a point and stand our ground. When we're not interacting with people in our very own neighborhoods, we're not understanding them or what they're going through or what our community needs. 
Um, and if that is the case, if you even do agree that that's the case and that that's a problem, you know, really, what can we do about it? Um, I don't think we can do anything in the commerce space. Maybe there are things we could do in other spaces. So I think I just took your question and made it longer. No, I, it's, it's a really, really good point. And it made me think of something I came across in the research this week. I'm not disagreeing with you, but this is something to just consider and, and, it puts a slightly different spin on the siloing versus not. One thing that they credited, well, it's uh, see if you think this is a positive or not. The research that I had that I ran across did posit this as a as a positive thing. Um, that the dominance of the Sears and Roebuck catalog standardized terms and ways to talk about household activities tool. I think the example they gave actually was that those in the South that might call something a sling blade or a slam bang were for, not forced, but conditioned to start calling them weed cutters. And they, and you had less of a regionalized way of discussing things. So in that way, you had more of a communal effect, which is interesting and different. I'm not disagreeing with you, but there, there could be something to be said for the way that it could standardize and bring things together. Whereas right now, to your point, such polarity. But I think that's more social media, right? I mean, Amazon, you're not sure there's the comment section, but you're not screaming with people about a slam bang versus a, maybe they will now. You know, it just, I wouldn't, anyway, see, I'm going to demonstrate myself being annoyed by certain factions in the U.S., but yeah, um, nah, nah, I guess this is why it's the big questions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We always, we always, I think, do this. We're going to like, ah. I do think there is something about standardization that's useful and helpful, especially people who want to do a little research on what it is they're buying. Yeah. So that is absolutely positive. But to your point, is it going to this bigger issue of like, we are just disconnecting more and more from what's right around us and creating a sense of community and um, a sense of togetherness versus a sense of separateness. Yeah. I can't resist. I know we probably want to wrap it up here in a few. Um, I feel like what's emerged in like me going through mine and then listening to yours is something Again, and I, I'm saying this, and I know when you say something so many times, it feels like you're trying to convince yourself. I really do mean, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but it raises something that is important to me that I need to continue to think about, continue to research. But for me, one of the biggest things that I feel is important is hmm, the balance of what is an individual responsibility that could end up degrading experience and freedom for everyone in quality of goods. Something that sets me off is if we ever got to a point where we were forced to buy reused clothes because right. the government decided that that's the way we need to go to, to solve the problem. Okay, Ayn Rand. That sets me off, right? That sets me off to such a degree because instead of embracing disruptive technologies for people that could make money off of recycling, could it, 
the capitalism itself can be the solve of a lot of the problems. You can privatize to certain extents mm -hmm. the solves. You could have people be rewarded for finding ways to massively increase recycling's efficiency, okay. lower the, you know, the costs. I would rather those types of things be from our wonderful government that just is so polarized that it does nothing now. Yeah. Which really is going to be like, sorry to go macro on this, but like our downfall yeah. in the world is going to be. So it's not, it's not Marvel, but it's DC. It's going to be very much Superman's home planet where the senators broke down and nothing happened and you mined the shit out of the, the planet and everything broke down. Anyone who's wondering why the hell we're laughing is we've noticed in our last three episodes that we keep bringing up pop culture, superhero freaking references. And I don't know if we should be really, really embarrassed by that or just think it's hilarious. I think it's a little bit of both. Um, but I think that's why that's written is that this country, his home planet died because there was such an impasse and such political rivalry and such inaction from the, I think it was the Senate or whatever of that. I think it's going to be very similar because where, where we start to take on the role ourselves, everything you just got passionate about, for me, that's where I'm like, if we don't handle it at a broader level where we nurture the science to fix it and we let people make money off of fixes to do things um all while still keeping a social health and safety infrastructure and network otherwise i feel like we embrace people are going to have to buy right. reused clothing the quality I, will go down like quality right. of life goes down and then we're in a dystopian novel where everyone's in ratty shit i agree with you which would be your biggest nightmare so <laughs> i um luckily you know how to make clothes so you could handle you could handle your own fashion and i don't want to i i don't think we should ever shy away from like slightly knowing each other i hope i'm not but like that's something that i'm no, hustling with. i want to say again i think i've said this to you in previous episodes Part of the point is to like debate this stuff. Right. You're never, no, you're no, never gonna hurt my feelings. I, I and I actually agree with you. I made fun of you a little bit there with the Ayn Rand reference, but I I do agree with you. And I do yeah. think um, so I mentioned when we were talking about forced labor that if there are not third independent parties, independent third parties auditing this, well, the system can create that these then people it's creating jobs and it's yes, managing it. Yes. It's not taking away from anything. Right. And if we think about the environment, first of all, everyone, I, I am an avid recycler, but I'll tell you what, most of our recycling goes nowhere because China's no longer taking our plastics. So it's a big problem. And um, metal, you buy metal if you can. If you buy like soda or water, metal is infinitely recyclable. So always go for metal if you can. Um, so fixing the recycling to your point, Mark, like incentivizing it, <clears throat> yeah. excuse me, finding ways to reuse materials and incentivizing companies as well as developers, inventors to come up with materials that are more environmentally friendly, not mandating you can, you know, never use plastic again because that's never right. going to work. And then we end up right where the world falls apart. But exactly what you said. So you think you're disagreeing with me, but you're actually agreeing. We're just coming at it from different ways. Right. And I'm saying they aren't issues we can ignore anymore. The, the, the planet and the injustice 
um, right. of slavery and forced labor, we have to find a way around them. And I, I do think regulation to some degree has its place, but I would much rather see the system and people incentivized. Yeah, so absolutely. agree. Oh, and just so there's no <laughs> miscommunication audience for you, I was not disagreeing on any of her points around slavery or, or uh, yeah, forced labor. It was more thinking I wanted to do around the consumption and about individual responsibility to to control that versus yeah governmental broader dynamics that I think are going to have much more of an impact but where I think the bridge is probably I agree with you I I think we are certainly coming at this from two different angles but ending up in the same place um the more that we demonstrate an interest as individuals in that means there is more of an opportunity for someone to create a business to cater to it because then they're going to have a societal, they're going to have customers. They're going to have, you know what I mean? An interest. Exactly. You just need, I'm not saying privatization is always the key that will make me sound conservative and I'm not, but there is also the flip side of that where the government keeps a stranglehold on things like sanitation and the process of that because it has become a trusted part of their infrastructure and 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 ways of operating etc but so they don't want to give it up but you may need to right if we have the Elon Musk of the world trying to get us to Mars imagine that type of massive dedication and innovation in the space of recycling you know would be and we're going to have to. I mean, literally, I think we're going to have to do it to survive. <laughs> we need. I agree. Wild steps forward. The 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 hope for me though is, you know, any listeners who have you know here with us for the third episode, um, I've been reading more science and physics books in the last few weeks because of the show and because of you know looking into this. The a lot of the physics advancements and things that are going to affect science. It's you see such the web of how all these things, right. Hook together. You unlock the next step of like integrated field theory and you unlock massive advancements in power and fusion and dynamics of you'd be able to potentially address things like waste and recycling in completely new ways. Maybe. Anyway, sorry, Alison, I'm going down another rabbit hole. No, that's great. It is great. I think this, these are the important things, but I agree with you. I think in the interest of time. Yes, yes. We had um, probably better wrap move. up. So Mark, you get to go first. Uh, how are you rating this? You were four. Thank you for correcting me earlier. Last I week, where did you come out? I'm like almost 100% positive, right? That I was four. I, th- I, think, I think you were because I do remember making the comment about it's like, it was like a gender thing, but if people knew us, they'd think it was funny. That <laughs> like it was actually flipped for us. So, um, yeah. I did not change that much. I I I went to a five and a half. I went from a four to a five and a half. A little bit more. Um, that's probably a little bit fueled by I didn't quite find the information to do the research I wanted, but I still was interested in where I went. But it you know it didn't didn't rile me up or feel it's funny I almost said it didn't feel as important but the more I think what we just talked about is so critical that it is so important I'm almost upset that I'm not giving it a higher number but I'll go with five and a half all right so four to five and a half I mean directionally correct um I I'm actually going to say the same 
So I think everything we talked about was so important, but similar to Mark, I wasn't overly excited initially and I gave it a higher rating than I had wanted to only because I thought there's gotta be a lot of different things to look at here. And I also really am passionate about the things I talked about, but I found it, as I mentioned a couple of times, I think during the episode, incredibly frustrating to find data, like incredibly, incredibly frustrating that 10 different valid sources had wildly different numbers. I'm not talking like off by a million here or there, wildly different and you couldn't get to a standard definition. So while I want, I'm glad that I did end up going in this direction and talking about these things that are so important to the world, it was incredibly frustrating. Um, and also like Mark, I just don't have like a, ooh, like super excited about this topic in general. So I'm going to keep it the same. I'm not going to drop it because I do think it brought us to some very important topics and conversations. Okay. So 6.5 to 6.5. All right. Okay, so I think we're ready for the word generation, Mark. Let's do it. All right. I uh, think your turn this week, right? It is. I actually get nervous every time I do this, and I don't know why. So <laughs> let me just make sure we are set to nouns. Okay, I wish I could say no gerunds, but I can't. So drum roll. Okay. It is not a gerund, so bonus. It's glory. Glory. Oh wow. I don't know why I say oh wow, that's just a it's a juicy word. Huh. Okay. I almost felt like a first reaction. Oh, we're we're allowed to do that first reaction. You get the first reaction because I generated um, the word. Glory, glory. <laughs> Makes me think of Pippin, such a musical theater geek. Um, I'm going to come in with seven and a half. Okay. Is that the highest you rated anything or initial rating or maybe orbit? You gave it a seven and a half too. I can't remember. I'm I'm gonna start that spreadsheet. I swear. Oh, that is. Um, that is odd. No, I like it. Seven point five. Remember, yeah, you my, said it out my, loud. You said God. it out loud. I did. I did. <laughs> um, I think it's great. I had to like try to repress myself when I or suppress myself when I read it to you because I was very like, oh, this is a good glory. I mean, there's so much there. I think I'm I'm gonna go with an eight. I, I don't want to overdo it, but I just think there's so much there. Uh, I initially, uh, you thought Pippin, I thought Rent. <laughs> One song, Glory. Oh, of course, of course. Um, so we both immediately went to musical theater, um, which I guess isn't too surprising. But this one, I think I'm excited about. Yeah, it's it's big and pivotal and behind so many things that humans do for one reason or another. All right, we'll get there, I'm sure. Ooh. Okay, right. so I think it's yeah. time to close out. Yes, so our, our third episode behind us. 
So a huge thank you to everyone who tuned in uh, to our third episode. If you enjoy the show, please follow or subscribe on whatever platform uh, you get your podcasts from. And please leave us a, a good rating. It really helps. It helps other people find the show and it helps us continue to create the show. You can also visit us on the web at renownedpodcast.com or on social media at Renowned Podcast. And of course, we hope you will tune in next week for a new episode with our new noun, Glory. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.